You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new centerfire rifle ammunition, Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet, and it comes in a variety of cartridges, including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06, and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com, and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode number 16. Uh, This week on the podcast, I am joined by the co-owner and co-founder of Seek Outside, Kevin Tim. Um, Kevin and I have a really cool conversation about really Kevin's upbringing uh, in the outdoors and and what led him 
to um, starting uh, Seek Outside uh, and how the company really transitioned from being just back or excuse me, being just uh, lightweight shelters for uh, backcountry hunting um, to the packs and the different things that you see um, offered in there on their website today. And it's, it's, it's a pretty cool kind of origin story. Um, and along the way, we talk about why conservation is so important um, to seek outside, to Kevin, and really how it conservation in the outdoors are all kind of intertwined with the company. And really, those things kind of help put together a, a big picture of what you see when, when you look at Seek Outside. Um, Kevin is, is a very passionate outdoorsman and is someone who truly believes in the product that he's putting out and stands behind it. And uh, for any of you that have used uh, Seek Outside, um, you know the type of quality uh, that I'm talking about. So really fun conversation with Kevin. Um, hope you guys enjoy. Joining me today, I have co-owner and co-founder of 2% Certified Business Seek Outside, Kevin Tim. Kevin, thanks for making some time today. How's it going? All right. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So I kind of want to get started here, Kevin. I kind of want to go all the way back to the beginning and just kind of understand and, and tell me how hunting and the outdoors and everything like that was introduced to you. Um, well, I grew up in uh, central Wisconsin. So I was in a very rural location. So my first passion early on was trout fishing. Um, I was big time into trout fishing for the little brookies and occasional rainbows in the area. I used to ride my bike all over, trout fish every little stream I could. If I had some free time, I was going to be fishing. I would camp out for the opening of trout season, stuff like that. Um, I also was into small game hunting um, early on, had my shotguns, stuff like that. Uh, I said it was pretty rural. I could literally walk out my door and go hunt on neighbors' farms and stuff like that and the woods in between the farms and things. Then, you know, of course, I got into some archery and all of that. And then I lived with my grandma. My grandma passed away when I was 14. I ended up living near Chicago for a bit. Um, there I was a bit of a fish out of water. I tried trapping and things like that <laughs> in the big city, which was, <laughs> which was kind of weird, <laughs> which was kind of weird. Um, so that was really the impetus. I was, I was very into outdoors. I spent most of my time as a child outside. Um, I was very into camping, spent most of my summer in a tent, um, Sometimes I was making trouble in the tent. Sometimes I wasn't. Um, <laughs> you know, if uh, if the fish weren't biting, I usually was finding some hill or bluff or some geologic feature to go farther around on. And, I mean, nothing like the mountains I live in now, but I used to, my aunt, she had a uh, big rock outcropping by her place, and I always climbed it first thing i did whenever we went there right and things like that because you could see like 30 or 40 miles which was amazing in the yeah. farmland so yeah so that's about it well it, it's interesting you say that so i mean <clears throat> obviously uh, originally from the midwest here and, and that's where you know where i'm currently located i'm here in michigan um and 
you talked about how you were kind of immersed yourself in the outdoors from a, from a very early age. And I was a lot of the same way. And then you said you found yourself in Chicago or in the kind of Chicago land area there in your early teens. And you said you felt like a fish out of water. Now I had actually lived in Chicago for a year in my, Oh goodness, mid twenties. And I mm-hmm. felt the exact same way. Um, my girlfriend who is now my wife, uh, she was going to graduate school out in Chicago. So I moved out there with her and, you know, it had, it was cool for like a month. Right. And then all of right. a sudden it would, there was just, there was nothing that I could, you know, all the stuff that I love to do, you know, hunting, fishing. Uh, I love to ski during the winter. I mean, none of that stuff I could, was really that accessible, um, there in Chicago. So yeah, I totally understand what you mean by feeling like a fish out of water there. Yeah, it's a weird kind of transition zone, um, and I'm not I'm not trying to rag on Chicago. It has right. um, obviously Lake Michigan, but it's almost like it's too warm to have good snow, um, but not really near any prominent geology or wild areas or anything like that. You know, Wisconsin felt much easier. Central Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin felt much easier to um, find a lake. Uh, be more wild, camp, things like that. And then there was also, I mean, yeah, there was real winters there, yeah. um, which uh, they had their benefits and they had their drawbacks. You know, I mean, um, it, it could certainly be, certainly was a lot colder than Chicago and where Chicagoland didn't really have like a whole lot of snow that stayed on the ground. So you couldn't necessarily do the winter sports aspect either. Yeah, they just get that real strong wind. I mean, obviously, it's called mm-hmm. the Windy City, but it, yeah, it seems like it. the wind is never below 20 miles an hour, especially in the winter coming off the lake there. I mean, it just, yeah, the, it, it's kind of, it's a different kind of cold there. Yeah, but everyone loves a cold wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were fishing for, for brookies and stuff as a kid, were you fly fishing or were you spinner fishing? I was spinner fishing. I tried fly fishing. Usually it was... I would dig up worms or from my garden, right? Yeah. We had a big garden and we were really, uh, I guess you would say relatively homesteady in a way, probably without realizing that we were being homesteady. Uh, of course it was a different time, but, but we had a big garden. We grew most of our stuff. Um, you know, I fished, we ate fish almost every time I went fishing, right. Okay. For dinner. Um, Likewise, um, you know, I deer hunted as I got older, uh, but I, I didn't have very long of actually doing that. But my cousins and stuff that stayed with us deer hunted. My grandma, she used to process game meat for people and then take a quarter for processing their deer. So we would have a lot of deer strung up in the fall around the property. And, you know, venison was probably our primary meat of choice um, because of that. Okay. So now, at what point was it that you found yourself out in Colorado? Oh, well, I found, I made my way to Colorado out of Texas, right? So from Chicagoland area, I ended up in Texas. Um, You know, at that point, I was a teenager, late teenager, um, who really didn't have much relationship with uh, his parents, and I, um, and my grandma who had done most of the raising of me, um, 
and she had passed away. I lived with my cousins for a while, but they had um, some problems with alcoholism, which didn't work out right, um, and things like that. And I mean, people tried, but I ended up in Texas, and Texas became much more about, uh, for lack of a better term, surviving um, than anything, right? I mean, there, Texas isn't known for its huge swaths of outdoors and stuff as well. And then at one point, I probably was in my mid-20s, and I got a job at about 50 miles out of town, and it was doing metal work at this basically fabrication place on a hilltop in a very remote location. And I was there most of the time by myself, and I thought, this is kind of cool. <laughs> I remember I used, I, I used to like these things, you know? I used to like being out in the country um, and things like that. Um, and being more in the land and out of the city. So, you know, a few years went by. I um, met my wife. Um, we moved to Austin. Um, had a child. Um, well, we had two in Austin. Um, but when I had my first son, right, and he got to be about two, I started thinking that um, city life wasn't really the way to raise a kid. And I thought that um, I would try to find a way to um, uh, get a more rural um, lifestyle. Um, I contemplated, I, I initially started out with um, looking at land back in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, northern areas there, because mm -hmm. that was kind of what I was familiar with. And then I kind of said, why not like the mountains? I like mountains, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I was like, I like doing stuff in mountains, so why that? So I, I kind of thought I would try to buy some recreation land, right, um, uh, to where the family could um, be free in the summer. And in my opinion, and I don't mean to irritate anyone who lives in Texas, but Texas is insanely hot in the summer, and I don't think it's really a spot I would want to raise kids in the summer because all they're going to do is want to sit inside an air-conditioned building. Right. They're not going to want to go outside. Right. Um, and so that just uh, wasn't really the way I envisioned things. Um, anyway, we ended up, I ended up getting a job in which I could work remotely, and then we moved to Colorado. Um, and at the time our kids were still very young. They hadn't started school yet. Um, our first place was pretty rural, um, which was awesome. It was on like 120 acres that we were renting. Um, it was kind of like somehow you won the lottery, had a, <laughs> had a creek, had a, had a creek you could fish and all this stuff too. Um, I didn't, I didn't even care what the house looked like. <laughs> it was just, it had space. It had a Creek. It was in the mountains. You could yeah. go bugling, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, over time we moved a little closer to town just because with children, you end up having to go to school a lot, um, for various circum, various reasons. Um, but we still live 
between a couple towns uh, on the western slope of Colorado, um, basically in the mountains. Um, I'm looking at mountains now. I can pull out my binoculars and spotting scope and see if I can see any animals. Um, I'm not but three, four miles from wilderness. You're making um, me jealous here, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, so that wasn't my intention. But I mean, but I mean, it's it's pretty cool and it is definitely one of the best moves, uh, one of the best moves I ever made, right, with my family. So, wh- so what year was that when you moved, when you finally um, made the move to Colorado? I think it was 2005, um, okay. and we had been coming coming out for a few years, um, and I don't want to say Colorado was necessarily the uh, intended location. Um, frankly, at least this year, Colorado feels a little busy, um, even though we're on six six hours from really any big city. Um, but it was a location, you know, when we when, when we were coming out west, you could basically get so far, and it was really like in Colorado. I mean, getting somewhere else was a two-day drive. You know, uh, we could get here overnight. You know, right. Um, so it was so it was close enough. Um, I have no regrets in it. Uh, we did look at some other places like Idaho and stuff, and uh, my wife. Before I took the job, my wife Angie, uh, business partner um, as well, um, she took the kids in an old truck camper with this Ford diesel we had, which was a piece of junk. Um, <laughs> and she drove around the country and just kind of picked her spot, you know. And I, I was supportive of this. Um, big mountains, elk, long ways away from any metro area. So that worked for me. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast and a lot of outdoorsmen and outdoors women in general would probably uh, feel the same way you do. Is that there's those are some some key uh, some key factors when you're talking about where you want to you know set up shop and where you want to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, Seek Outside, the company that you co-founded with your wife. You started mm-hmm. that in 2009, correct? Yeah, 2009, 2010, um, somewhere right up around in there. Um, you know, obviously when I moved back here, um, or when I moved to Colorado, I decided to get into hunting, right, um, to get back to hunting. Um, it was definitely a big learning curve from the hunting that I had done, you know, in Wisconsin, um, the fish fishing wasn't that big of a jump. A trout's kind of a trout. <laughs> I can right. still catch rookies, right, um, and stuff like that. Um, but the hunting um, was a big jump, um, and so I had been into doing that. And then I had started. I was also into lightweight backpacking and stuff like that. And I started thinking, like, you know, you need some different gear um, for these shoulder seasons, right? Like October, November, stuff like that. I, I quickly realized that while at the time I was 
I was super, super fit. I was running ultras and stuff like that at that time. And it wasn't a big deal for me to put on 15, 20, 25 miles in a day, um, just peak bagging or hiking in the mountains. Um, I realized that in the hunting thing that you really would spend a lot of energy if you were hiking in every day. Um, that wasn't necessarily needed that you would just, I mean, even come from my house. Okay. And say I'm hunting across the street in the wilderness over there. Um, it takes me, say I get, I'm really efficient at getting ready in the morning. I have two cups of coffee, slam them and have a pre-made breakfast taco or something. It takes me 30 minutes to get out of the house at a minimum. Uh, it takes me 20 minutes to get to the trailhead just because it's a rough road. Um, and then it takes me an hour hiking quickly to get into elky terrain. So that's two hours to work backwards from sunrise, right? right. And then, And then, you know, always sunrise, sunset are the best hunting times. I mean, you can get stuff during the day. But I realized that, well, if I camp up here, hey, I can sleep two more hours. <laughs> I can uh, literally, yeah, right? right. Or at least an hour 45. Um, I can, I have my ears going on all night. I might hear elk bugling in the middle of the night, right? Which is, which helps me identify where I'm, what I'm going to do the next morning. Um, you know, it, it was just much easier to, spend multiple days out like that you know if you go the other route of hiking in and say you want to spend all day out there to get the same amount of time in the field um a 6 30 sunrise or seven o'clock sunrise will mean you have to be out of bed by five and say the sun sets close to seven means you're going to get home about nine um you know, you, you, are down to eight hours sleep right there and you haven't even showered eight or unwound. Right. Right. Yeah. You're, 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 yeah, you're wasting, you're not wasting, but you're, you're using a lot of time that you don't necessarily need to use. Yeah. You're using four hours just getting in and out of your area every day. Right. And what I, what I saw was with buddies I would hunt with and stuff like that, that it was just really hard to stack a bunch of days like that. Yeah. You know, three, four days, and people are like, hey, I'm sleeping in today. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And, and that the way to more time in the field was to backpack in and be very close to the area you're going to hunt. And frankly, even then, and when I do that style of hunting, it's not uncommon that, you know, if I say I have, am a little tired, go back and take a nap for a half hour in the day. Right. You know, it's not a big deal. So, so, so that's kind of, it, it sounds like that was kind of the driving force behind the idea for Seek Outside. So mm -hmm. what, how did you kind of, what caused you or what was the, I guess the turning point when you said, okay, let's, let's figure out how I can turn what seems to be a need in, in the out, you know, in backpack hunting and shoulder hunting, like you said, shoulder season. 
what what made you decide to take that step and say okay let's let's try and you know make a shelter make a tent that you know that i can put on my back that's lightweight that i can take out into the mountains and essentially you know afford myself those extra you know a couple hours of sleep in the morning and at night with the wind down time what 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 did that look like well some of the impetus was i'd been trying to get my dad out elk hunting right Mm -hmm. um and I mean, my dad yeah, at the time he was 65, 66, um, lifelong smoker. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to fool myself. He's not going to gain 2000 feet of elevation in the morning to, uh, to be up there at 6am. Right. 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 Uh, on a hike in. So I had been looking at ways that I could try to get him back in a a way that was comfortable um renting a hut renting something like that and none of them really seemed to be um that feasible right um like you can make some things work but not really so i was just kind of thinking about it i was snowshoeing it was maybe i think it was probably january or december i was snowshoeing post holing in deep powder just kind of thinking letting things kind of churn, you know, how sometimes problems churn and they just take a while to resolve themselves. Right. And I thought, I thought to myself, you know, what you could use need is some sort of teepee, right? Something that looks like a teepee that is made from like an ultralight nylon, like a parachute material that you could either build a fire in or something else, right? So I thought I had this epiphany, right? I come home, tell my wife, Angie, and she tells me it's the stupidest thing she's ever heard. Uh, um, you know, we looked online and, and we started to see that some some people were making products kind of like that, um, but they were really pricey. Um, I asked her about buying one. She was like, no way. It's stupid. <laughs> so so then I said, well, why don't we try to sew one? And she's like, I've had one sewing class in my life. It's a stupid idea. You know, um, we bought some cheap fabric at like Walmart or something. Sewed one up. It looked awful. She's like, see, I told you it was stupid. Um, I said, give me one more chance. You know? Uh, make a couple small models and within a couple months the next one came out much better right and within a couple months we were taking um one of ours out right um and we took uh that spring i used one on a backcountry skiing trip right up at uh, a tree line a couple times um we took it on a mountain biking trip around um white rim in canyon lands um we got a lot of use a lot of use from it right as a family and we tried family backpacking before and that was not a lightweight endeavor with two small children you know you're you're carrying 50 60 pounds in right um and so we started making a few of our own tents um smaller one a mid-sized one a bigger one and then we kind of started thinking like well yeah we should maybe make we have a different take on it let's um try to make this into a business so that's kind of where 
we started really to try to make it into a business um, from that get-go and I'm not gonna lie at first it was kind of kind of like was this the right decision um, you know in the first you know we, we sold product early on and um, we did all right um, in our first two three years but there were times that we obviously questioned um, whether we were doing the right thing whether it was worth the effort um, worth the criticism I mean you always going to have dis- detractors when you start something right either via competitors or whatever not everyone is supportive um, but it obviously became the right decision um, within three four years we were doing really well I mean early on we really wanted to provide value but we you know and you 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 start to form your own identity as to what you want to be as a brand and we wanted to have good value but value did not mean cheap right because you can go buy cheap tents at your discount sporting goods outlet that you will will send you home swearing you're never going to sleep in a tent again right and and telling your friends how awful it was so and they won't last very long and i'll have a host of other problems so we wanted to provide good value but we didn't want to be cheap and we felt good value was being able to be used long term having a long life cycle for the product and performing in a lot of different environments well now so are you guys or even in the first you know three to four years like you said when things kind of started to take off there were you guys doing all of the sewing yourself was it still just you and angie that were making all of these tents no um when we started we sewed angie sewed primarily i figured out more of like the cuts and stuff like that um she did the sewing um we hired a local lady um to help us sew as well she was a better seamstress than angie um but she just made some prototypes and then we started looking around and we kind of came to the conclusion that and it's really kind of the conclusion a lot of business owners or makers end up making um is that if they're the producer then they can't really be the promoter or the designer near as much as they would like to be so we did agree early on that we were not going to be the sewers we were going to find people that sewed really well and it turned out down the road from us in grand junction which is about 100 miles away there used to be an old marmot factory okay. and there was a lot of people that worked for marmot before marmot moved up sold and moved overseas and so there was a pretty good skill level selling outdoor gear there so we got into talking to a couple of them and they started selling stuff for us um and then they're also in junction happens to be um some younger people that sew pretty well um as well and over time we ended up adding them and now we are seeing um for whatever reason um 
I mean, our our politics, our world, all those things have changed immensely in the last 10 years. Right. Now we're seeing a lot more young people come in with interest in sewing. You know, either that they were wanting to make their own gear, they're being frugal, they're being more artsy, or maybe they see us and think that that's a, that's a viable thing. Um, so our staff, we early on we joked that we had a bunch of old marmot sewers and you could mean old as in former or old as in well yeah they weren't really spring chickens anymore um <laughs> I, I mean because the marmot factory was in the 70s and 80s you know right um and but now our staff is trended down to where we have a lot of 20 something sewing for us a lot of 30 somethings, you know, a lot of younger people as well to mix in. So that's a lot better. And some of them are doing a fantastic job. Now, how many and currently we, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, as I was going to say, we currently have 50 some people working for us. So, um, that's pretty good. Yeah, no, you, you answered my question before I was going to ask, I was just going to ask you how many, um, how many people you guys had on staff and, and stuff like that. So, so you started off with tents, um, and at what point did you decide to start making backpacks as well? Because, you know, on your website, you guys offer, uh, you know, a wide variety of packs, whether it's, you know, something to get you out for, you know, five to seven days or something that's just for, you know, more of a day trip. So what, um, what was that just kind of a, maybe like a, a next logical step in terms of backpacking and backpack hunting, or what did that look like? Well, you know, you walk around in the woods enough, you start seeing where people are struggling, right? You see people like fighting their pack, things like that. I was into more lightweight and ultralight backpacking. I didn't really have a hunting pack that I loved. I bought one of what would be considered one of the more top tier brands or whatever, um, I hauled out a bear with it. It beat me up pretty bad. Um, and I started having ideas myself, which was kind of problem. Sometimes I have ideas, right? And I have a hard time turning off that part of my brain. Um, it's just a natural curiosity, right? On uh, concepts and things. I started having ideas and wondering if there wasn't a better way. Um, and some of it was I was using a mixed mash of packs I had bought, packs that people said were good, packs that people said were great hunting packs, um, packs that I bought at rummage sales or flea markets or thrift stores, right? Yeah, you were trying and, everything. Yeah, and there were some things that I was like, you know, um, this concept at this thrift store, I actually really... You know, like I bought this pack at a thrift store for five bucks. The frame was bent. I got it back into shape. And I was like, this pack actually is really good. And it's only like four and a half pounds versus the high-end hunting pack I bought was like eight pounds. You know, and then I think I had an old Jansport as well and an old Kelty. And you started looking, well, those call and load all right for me you know what i mean um they don't beat me up too bad yeah i don't want to hunt with them 
So I just kind of had these thoughts and started tinkering. Um, and then one of our customers, Nathan, um, started as a customer. Um, he was bought one of our tents, was going on his first elk hunt. Um, he was from Tennessee. He showed up here. He had two or three fancy high-end packs, um, him and his buddy. Um, and he'd been researching his elk hunt of a lifetime forever, right? And I had given him some pointers as to where we, where to go. Um, I don't do that anymore, just so I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> just so I don't get asked. Um, I had given him some pointers of where there was usually elk that I knew of. Um, and he came out, um, and he pops out of his truck with his high-end packs and I was I don't want to say I was a detractor but I was like what are you going to do when it rains or snows on you and he's like well it's dry here and I'm like my experience has been you spend five days in the mountains you're going to get rained on or snowed on right almost almost all the time um and he's like well I have these Cuban fiber rain pack covers I mean he was kind of really he was kind of really geeking out on gear you know, um, and uh, as I mean, a lot of hunters are right. Yeah, yeah, but he was really sure. kind of geeking, geeking out on gear. And so he went up his buddy that he was hunting with her, his mother-in-law had maybe a heart attack or something like that. And he had to leave. So now he was solo. He Nathan had just been married. His wife was worried. So I hiked in with him. I hiked into where he was, um, took a big tent to make it really comfortable, took a six-pack of IPA up there. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and where we were smelled a lot like elk urine <laughs> right by our camp. And um, the next morning, he heard a bugle, and we separated, and you know, and then it rained and snowed for a couple days, and he watched these elk and um, discovered they had a little pinch point and got in correct good position with his bow, arrowed a 320 bull on his first ever public land archery hunt. Um, probably will never happen again to him, right? Oh, yeah, um, no, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> you know, and, the, and it was raining and snowing, and then he had to pack it out and you know, I went up and helped with my friend, uh, my son Owen and my friend one F Jeff and, um, helped him pack out and he was miserable. He was beat up. His pack was beating him up. It wouldn't, wouldn't stay on his hips. You know, he was, he was pretty bruised up. And so he was very much into, I have to find a better pack. He went back to Tennessee. He started buying all these packs on Craigslist and just trying packs and loading them up and taking walks with a hundred pounds and stuff like that. Um, and I talked to him saying, you know, I had had some concepts, you know, that I had been looking at. I had replaced the frame in a pack, you know, and done some things, but I wasn't really happy either. And I thought there was some concepts, um, and finally, we decided to really kind of 
pro said, you know, he asked me like, Hey, do you think you could make this into a carbon fiber frame? And I would chase things down and find out, well, it's going to cost 6,000 bucks to mold up that frame. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so you're going to have a really expensive backpack for yourself. Um, and so finally we said, why don't we take 500 bucks each, just put it in a thing and set up on just trying to develop a pack with it. And if at the end of the 500, we don't have anything we think is compelling, um, then we just walk away and we just spent 500 bucks. Right. Right. And if we do, um, we'll think about if it's something that could be a business and Angie at that time didn't want anything to do with pack world. Um, she thought tent world was enough. And, um, so we started, he did all the testing of different load stuff. I did testing here, but I was more into the making and I kind of had my concepts where they were the things that I believed needed to be done, um, in the pack. And after all his testing, he kind of started to gravitate towards the approaches I had been leaning towards as well. Um, as far as frame and belt function. Um, and we also agreed that we weren't going to make a pack that was like anything really out on the market. We weren't going to, because we felt that a lot of them were very flawed. And so we started messing around with frames and he got the one frame, a few frames built. He found a place where he could bend up some aluminum. We do some sample frames. Um, I got a couple sample belts made um, because, well, I had access to sewers and a couple things. And we had these really atrocious looking packs that we couldn't let anyone see. I mean, <laughs> I, ha I had this, I had this pack with duct tape on it. It was like a bare metal frame with some screws in it with pat with padding duct taped on it and some other things tied on that I, that I would take on test hikes and I would have to seek out someplace that I just did not think I could ever see anyone. Right. And go for a test hike up some steep terrain. And we did that a few times and we both were like, this concept carries really well. So we decided to make it into a business. Um, it wasn't like tents. It wasn't necessarily an easy business initially. Um, one, there was a lot of learning, but the other thing that didn't make it easy was that we were very different conceptually, right? So articulating it to people was, at articulating its advantages was different because people sometimes want to look at something and be like, it looks like a Jeep. I know what it should be like. Yeah. Right? And, right. you know, and so when it's conceptually quite different, you know, more than anything, they scratch their head and, huh, it's kind of interesting and, you know, ask you all sorts of weird questions. But then we sold some early on to the more early adopters and their feedback was terrific. I remember one guy was like, he'd had the pack barely a month and he's like, this is the 11th animal I've hiked out with this. Oh, wow. And I was like, geez, <laughs> you're really going after it, you know? Um, but that's what a lot of people in Alaska do. Right. So that was the start of the pack business over time. 
we probably, you know, it's always been kind of a square peg round hole um, versus the rest of the world on packs. Um, it's conceptually very different. Um, we think that in the hunting realm, very few packs even come close to it as far as matching the weight capability combo. Um, but, but it is different. It still is different than what people expect a lot of times. Yeah. Now, kind of going back to what you were saying that it started off as kind of a back and forth with you and Jeff and bouncing ideas off of one another. I got to imagine that that's just entering into that space with packs and, you know, load hauling packs specifically. I mean, yeah, that's a, a totally different ball game than, you know, a tent, which I would imagine, you know, I. I know nothing about sewing, you know, the manufacturing of, of tents and, and packs and things like that. But tents, you know, seem like maybe two or three pieces of fabric that are sewn together. Whereas, you know, a pack has so many different moving parts um, that go into it, you know, just from the shoulder straps, the hip belt, you know, the frame, any type of pockets for carrying accessories, uh, you know, uh, a meat shelf or, you know, whatever you want to refer to it as to, to be able to haul um, your animal out of the backcountry. Yeah, that, that seems like a pretty daunting task. It was very different. Um, tents are more cut and dried. There's some challenges, right, um, of how you reinforce things, a lot of what your fabric is, your cuts. There's some nuance to it, but when talking to people, right, they're relatively fact-based, right? Like it's like a 1500 square foot, three bedroom, two bath house, right? It's relatively like, that's the fact. Yeah. Um, this tent is 150 square feet and is seven feet tall or, and it weighs four pounds. There's, there's not a lot of interpretation in there. With packs, there's a lot more of what I call the Goldilocks syndrome, right? The porridge is too hot. The porridge is too cold. The porridge is whatever. And there's there's also the stylistic component mm -hmm. um, that they're worn. And some people are obsessed that their pack needs to match their camo. <laughs> um, yeah, you know... Um, and, and we don't go there. I mean, if you need your pack to match your camo, move on, move to somewhere else, right? Yeah. Um, we, we build for function, right? Um, but but there is a lot different perceptions, you know? Like, does does my pack make me, my hips look big? Practically, <laughs> you know? <and> I, <laughs> you know, there's a stylistic component to them, right? Yeah, and that's uh, it's that, like you said with the packs that, you know, every person is, is different, right? So to try to come up with, um, I don't want to say universal, but you need to, to come up with a design that also incorporates the features that is going to, that are, that is going to appeal to, you know, the most amount of, of hunters out there. And that's, that's where I can see the, you know, the, the difficulties coming into play when it, when it, um, revolves around the design. Yeah, and I mean, even within us, within Seek Outside proper, right? We have a lot of users, hunters, stuff on staff, right? Mm -hmm. um, even with, within us, we don't 
all agree on everything. I think probably the closest thing we agree on is that we all really like the Lanner um, as a pack bag, as a do-all everything. Um, but I think Nathan prefers more of like the Gossock style, but a lot of us really like the Lanner a lot. Um, but we all wear them a little bit different. We all have slightly different preferences. And it's just, kind of, it's, it's, there's a lot of Goldilocks in it, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, we touched on it very early on, or I, I mentioned it um, in the beginning when I was introducing you there that Seek Outside is a, a 2% certified business. So how was it that you learned about 2% and, and what was it that made you want to get involved and become a member with 2% for conservation? Well, Seek Outside has been very into conservation early on. Um, we've also been very into doing business our way, the way that we feel is the most responsible um, that, and supporting what we feel. And I'm not, I'm not trying to get political in it at all, right? But we've been very big into conservation since since the get-go we were at the first bha rondi um things like that because we make part of it outside of just our outside of our passion for the backcountry is also that we make gear for dispersed public lands activities more than anything hunting backpacking whatever we're not we're not making stuff for the koa I mean, maybe you'll see <laughs> one of our tents in the KOA at some point. I never have. Um, I've seen our tents randomly in the mountains in use when, you know, just walked upon some place and be like, oh, that's my tent. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, that's got to um, be a cool feeling. Yeah. Um, but, but I've never seen them at the KOA or at those kind of things. Not to say they can't be used there. But that isn't our focus at all, right? right? Um, and so public lands and conservation has always been very important to us. And we've always felt that businesses um, need to lead in that response to it. And unfortunately, there probably is a lot more politics to it than, than, than anyone wants to admit as well, right? But uh, I know in having talked with people in the past that are involved in, say, TRCP or conservation causes or the Wilderness Society or similar, they really like when businesses get on board with conservation initiatives because it's a much easier story to tell to the representatives and senators and things like that, right? Um, so it, it helps reinforce that not just that public lands are are some big albatross hanging around the government's neck. Know that people are out there using them, that businesses are making money, that people are being employed by it. And so 2%, I was actually in Escalante, Utah. I was either just getting done with a trip or just getting ready to go on a trip. And I saw Josh Kuntz who used to work for BHA, had shared something about 2%. So I maybe texted someone. It was Jeff 
Esposito. Um, we chatted on the phone in like the one place in Escalante I could get service. Um, and I was like, awesome. I want us involved in this. Right. But then it kind of seemed to die for lack of a better term for maybe a year, year and a half. And you probably can give much better details on timelines than I can. And then Jared became involved and it seemed to pick up some steam. And then we got involved officially with it. But it seemed like initially there was the concept and then it just kind of went away for a while and then came back. So on that, we've always been highly involved in conservation. And we believe that with 2%, it's a, it's a lot of putting your money where your mouth is. And well, I have heard customers that detract and I, I've, I've gotten comments from customers that are like, I don't give a rat's ass about any of this conservation crap. I just want you to sell me gear, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, that is what our, that is what our company is founded on. That is what our company requires. We require that, that wide open spaces and stuff. Now, ironically, this whole COVID thing has probably made the world realize that public lands are really a natural, a national treasure, right? That now, without the ability to go to the movie theater, to Disneyland, to on your cruise or whatever, or Six Flags, um, so many people are recreating out here. Um, that it's frankly I, i've kind of been joking we the u.s needs to go through some sort of mountain building um thing real quick and we need some more mountains because <laughs> it's 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 really crowded <laughs> you know i saw last night we had a wildfire um about by junction that's burning pretty big and i tried to see if i could see it from a high spot up here and I, it was just too smoky um but I saw seven people camped on the side of the road, like it was practically um, a Walmart parking lot or something, right? Um, they weren't right at where it says National Forest, the very first. So everything is pretty full. There are so many people using public lands now. Um, that being said, there also needs to be an education component um, I know at our local level, um, we had a someone get arrested for assault on a backcountry Jeep trail. Um, and so we have, you know, our law enforcement stuff was stopping people at popular roads, um, you know, handing out little pamphlets of this is the proper backcountry etiquette, right? Um, unfortunately, I've seen far more tire tracks across Tundra than I would like to this year. Um, far more trash. Um, and I don't know if uh, some of that's just got to be education, right? I mean, it, it breaks my heart when I find a McDonald's bag 50 miles in a remote basin 50 miles from the nearest McDonald's. Yeah. Um, like there, I'm like there wasn't a better spot for this trash yeah. or it was fine in your car for 50 miles. Couldn't make it another 10 to the trash somewhere. Yeah. Um, just keep it in your pack. Yeah. So, I mean, those things, but, but I mean, as we saw, 
Great Outdoors Act passed, right? Um, we've seen other things. Um, we had Rachel Schmidt on our podcast. Um, she's the outdoor rec director for the state of Montana, you know, and we've done things on the conservation front, like starting to track the jobs that it creates. And it really is a big, big economy. And just because you don't have mountains doesn't mean that it isn't a big economy. RVs are hot this year. Um, most RVs are made in Elkhart, Indiana, which I don't think has any mountains. Uh, no, I can I can definitely attest that. I've been through Elkhart more than once, and yeah, there's definitely uh, barely rolling hills in Elkhart. But, but they make a lot of money off outdoor recreation. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the organizations uh, that Seek Outside is <clears throat> donating or giving their time or dollars back to? Well... Two percent is really a certification, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's not like we give you guys a lot of money or anything. It's just a certification. We pay a fee, right? Um, BHA, we've typically done spent a ton of time with backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, we've also done some stuff with smaller things like. Um, Dave and Amy Freeman, when they spent a year in the Boundary Waters to raise awareness of the mining, um, that the proposed mining there, mm-hmm. um, we did stuff with that. I also went and did a resupply with them in the winter. Um, fantastic people, you know. Um, so we've done some more smaller scale stuff like that. We've done some stuff with the Wilderness Society. Um, we're always looking. Um, you know, we sign on to a lot of things. Um, we've done some things with meeting with senators, uh, meeting with representatives. Um, and we're always looking, but things have to be, they have to have a clear support for the type of hunting and stuff that um, we do um, to even get started, right? Right. Um, so, there's a little bit of a delineation between some of the more common ones that are maybe seen in the rec world, because I don't necessarily believe all of them are pro hunting, pro ethical fair chase hunting. Maybe they say they do, but if you look at their social media, you know, um, pro what the biologists say, right? Yeah. Um, probably the best advice they have um but then others you know i mean i've went to washington dc with people from the wilderness society um angie's went to washington dc with backcountry hunters and anglers um things like that so okay yeah well i mean it uh it's good to see a company one that you know is obviously giving back to conservation but I think that it helps from, let's say, from, from my standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, knowing that um, not only that a company is is giving back to conservation, but that they're active participants in hunting and backpacking and, and you know fishing and things like that. Because those are the people and those are the companies that, you know, can really speak to the culture of a company. They understand the importance and the value behind 
conservation just as a whole. So it, it makes companies like Seek Outside that much easier to support, knowing that they have the same views and the same values and outlooks um, that they do when it comes to conservation and the outdoors and, and making sure that we're preserving, you know, our, our wild places. Yeah, it's got to be preserved for future generations. I mean, this year, um, things we've done, I believe we have a project that we're doing with TRCP. Um, I know we have a project we've been working on with Trout Unlimited. Um, so we do, we just spend a lot of time. And when things align, um, with, with, when the organization aligns with our values um, towards the outdoors, um and towards conservation and towards you know preserving it for future generations um then good things happen yeah absolutely and that's <clears throat> that's what's what's most important is is making sure that you know our kids and our grandkids and you know so on down the line have the same opportunities to you know enjoy the things that that we do right now yep certainly is no well, Kevin, I really appreciate the time for you uh, that you took to, to hop on the podcast today. I know you're out there in Colorado and you're, you know, in the start of your hunting season and looking out the window at the mountains, you got to be chomping at the bit a little bit. So I, I appreciate you making some time this morning. No worries. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I wish you, uh, you know, nothing but uh, luck here this fall and real quick where can people um check out your tents and your stoves and your backpacks and all that stuff well we sell almost everything online um through our website seekoutside.com there are a couple of retailers um but they're in more remote areas um there's a retailer on kodiak island there's a retailer in soldatna um there's Go Hunt is a retailer. Um, there's a place in Sweden, I think, um, that's a retailer. And there's a place in Japan that does really well. Um, but the bulk of our stuff is direct online. And I think there's a place in the Boundary Waters as well. I'm not in the Ely side, but at the other, what's that other town? Marias, uh, Grand Marais or something like that. Okay. Um, yeah, but there's a few small specialty places and destinations, but for the book, for the most part, go to seekoutside.com. Um, go to our YouTube channel. Um, you can find our Facebook, our Instagram, all of that from there. Okay. Well, it, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, Kevin, and, uh, hopefully we talk again soon. Sounds great. Thank right. you. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, a big thank you um, to Kevin for hopping on the podcast today and telling us more about uh, Seek Outside. Uh, I'd also like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier. Uh, be sure and check them out at stoneglacier.com. I'd also like to thank our partners 2% for Conservation. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you're shopping for your gear or your coffee, your books, uh, real estate, uh, whatever it may be, uh, be sure to check out 2%'s um, website. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they post only uh, positive conservation-driven content. Uh, so again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on their social medias or at fishandwildlife.org. 
Thanks for tuning in today, guys. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Stay safe out there, and remember that conservation starts with you. 